0: You're listening to a sermon from our pastor Brian Payne. We would love to have you worship God with us this Sunday at 10:45 in the morning and at six o'clock in the evening, as we make, nurture, and equip disciples of Jesus Christ in Auburn and throughout the world. Well, good morning. If you turn your Bible to John 15, I'm going to apologize ahead of time for my voice. And contrary to what some may think, this voice—I uh, had this voice before the football games yesterday. Uh, But hopefully we can persevere and Lord will give grace Uh, Thank you Adam and choir and orchestra for leading us in worship Reminding us that Christ is ours forevermore And may he show us that even as we consider this passage in John 15 If you would look with me for context verse uh, verse 4 of John 15 Abide in me and I in you and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. Let's pray. Father, we have seen over the last week, and as we will see this week, that the Christian life is first and foremost abiding. And we recognize that you have given us ordinary means by which we abide. And one of those means is singing. Singing. We have sung. Another means is hearing the word preached. And we pray today, Lord, as the word is preached, that you would overcome my weakness this morning and that you would be what your people need this morning so that they may abide more fervently. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Friday was the 60th anniversary Of the tragic and might I say wicked bombing by a group of Klansmen of the 16th Street Baptist Church in Birmingham where four precious girls were killed while attending Sunday school it was the turning point of the civil rights movement as the nation took note of the t- atrocities that were taking place in places like Birmingham. But Timothy George describes the story of one young woman who was the superintendent, the, the director, if you will, uh, of the Sunday School. Her name was Carolyn Mall McKinstry. It was gray and overcast on a Sunday morning, September the 15th, 1963. Some rain had fallen in the night, but no one knew that the heavens would weep again before the day was over. It was Youth Sunday at the church, and Pastor John Cross had announced that he would preach a sermon titled, A Love That Forgives. Carolyn, who was age 14 at the time, and the Sunday school secretary, hurried to fulfill her responsibilities She greeted visitors, counted Sunday school offerings, and reported the day's attendance. In the brief interval between Sunday school and the morning worship, Carolyn stopped by the girls' restroom and spoke to her friends, Cynthia Wesley, Addie Mae Collins, and Carol Robertson, all age 14, and Denise McNair, who was age 11. She left the restroom, walked up the stairs to the church office, and answered the ringing phone. A man's voice said simply, three minutes. He hung up. Carolyn felt confused. She walked into the sanctuary where the clock hanging on the wall indicated that the time was 1022 AM. And then she heard the blast. For a second, she thought it was thunder. Then she realized it must be a bomb. She remembers two things from that horror-filled moment. The sound of feet scurrying past her to get to the exits and looking up at the stained glass window, the same one that had brought her such comfort when she looked into the face of Jesus at her baptism. The window was still intact, all except the face. Jesus' beautiful face was gone. Now, though most evil in the world may not reach the heights of that kind of wickedness because of God's restraining grace, it does remind us even 60 years later that things are not yet the way they're supposed to be. Evil and rebellion and behind that idolatry abound in the world. They also abound in every human heart. And the question is, where's the hope? Where is the hope when you see this kind of atrocity? And when you see your own sin every day? Well, ultimately the hope is in the resurrection, the ascension, and the session and the coming again of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is where the ultimate hope is. But there's a sense in which that hope has been inaugurated, a very real sense in which that hope has been inaugurated by the resurrection of Jesus, the ascension of Christ, and the gift of the Holy Spirit, who comes and unites former rebels to the true vine. Former rebels from every tribe and tongue. So that, as Isaiah foresaw in Isaiah 27, in days to come, Jacob shall take root. Israel shall blossom and put forth shoots and fill the whole world with fruit. And that begins with the true vine. We saw that last week in John 15:1. Ultimately, this will be fulfilled in the new creation. We know that. The whole world, every nook and cranny, will be one big vineyard as Christ's branches are rightly united to this true vine. But even now, that hope is anticipated Uh, as branches from every tribe and tongue bear fruit as they are united to the vine and are pruned by the vine dresser and John 15:8 tells us this is how the father is glorified by this bearing of fruit and this is the point of John 15 verses 1 to 17 now last week we saw that 1 to 17 can be neatly broken down into two parts the first part we looked at last week we saw in verses 1 to 6 that To be united with Christ, union and communion means life for the branch. Today, in verses 7 to 17, we see what that life produces. It produces very real life and fruit. And that brings us to the first part of this passage. We see that abiding in Christ, abiding in the vine, bears the fruit of answered prayer. Look with me in verse seven. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. So as we read earlier, abide is found four times in verses four to five. In verse six, Jesus spells out the consequences of a life that does not abide in the vine. The consequence is judgment. It's very clear on that in verse 6. But abiding in Christ, as we saw last time, is to remain in, to abide, to persevere in what I would call doxological dependency. I say doxological because it's an act of worship. But it's dependency because... It's a real sense of desperation. Apart from Christ, we can do nothing that has any enduring value. But this particular verse tells us two things about this kind of life. First of all, it tells us how to abide. And then it, it shares with us, Jesus shares with us here, one of the great fruits of this kind of life. First of all, notice it tells us how to abide. He says, if you abide in me, in my words abiding you. This is what Paul meant in Colossians three sixteen when He says, let the word of Christ richly indwell you. And so a wordless believer cannot abide in the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, this is the means by which we abide. And, and so to abide in Christ is to bring the light of God's word, the life of God's word into your hearts and into your minds and let that word warm and shape your affections. It's to behold Christ for all that he is as revealed in scripture. It's to behold him for all that he has accomplished for us. It's to behold the promises and all that we are in Jesus Christ, what he has secured for us. And as that word indwells us, we see that one of the fruits is answered prayer because when the word indwells us, it draws us in to Christ in communion. And and prayer is like a vital sign. It's like breathing. And not only do we pray, he answers our prayers. Why? Because our requests are shaped and transformed by the word of God. Indeed, as this word shapes our desires and transforms us by the spirit from the inside, we will increasingly pray for those things that accord with his will. Hallowed be your name. That becomes our our jealousy, our zeal. Your kingdom come, your will be done. And so this is not the promise of a blank check. This is not a promise of name it and claim it, blab it and grab it. That is not the promise here. In fact, John will write elsewhere. In 1 John chapter 5, verse 14, if we ask anything, notice, according to his will, he hears us. And so those who are abiding in Christ as the word abides in them will be so influenced by the word of God, that they will generally ask nothing that is contrary to the will of Christ. As Charles Haddon Haddon Spurgeon said it, and I love this, the secret to successful prayer is that Christ listens to your words because you listen to his words. That's the promise here and the conditions for that promise. And so such a person will have his or her desires and motivations and thoughts regulated and transformed by the word of God. And and there's so much at stake here. Indeed, the purpose for which we were created is at stake. Look with me in verse 8. By this... By this, my Father is glorified. That is magnified. He is glorified by that abiding relationship and the fruit that stems from that. That you bear much fruit and notice, and so prove to be my disciples. So this fruit bearing, in this particular case, answer prayer, glorifies the Father as we are praying according to his will and he answers those prayers. But this fruit bearing also proves that we are disciples. A fruitless Christian does not exist. There may be seasons where your fruit is eclipsed by some kind of fleshly, uh, time that you are our fleshly response, but as a rule, the fruitless Christian does not exist. And, and note how Jesus works to draw us in to abide. He's not just laying commands on us. You know, it's like a, a football coach says: if you if you don't if you don't uh, run a particular speed or if you don't have a particular strength, you can't play for me. Well, that may be true, but it doesn't change reality. Laying commands on us is not sufficient. So, Jesus here, what he's doing, he's he's wooing us. He's wooing us. That's how he transforms us. And that brings us to the next part of this passage Abiding in Christ bears the fruit of answer prayer, but abiding in Christ also bears the fruit of obedience. And he is going to lay these commands or these expectations on us by wooing us. Look with me in verse nine, in a remarkable verse. I wouldn't believe it if I didn't read it here. And you wouldn't either. As the father has loved me, so have I loved you. Do you get that? Jesus is saying, He loves you, the believer, as much as the Father loves him. If I didn't see it here, it would be impossible to believe. And keep in mind, he's not some impotent lover. This is the Lord of the universe who is seated at the right hand of the Father, ruling and reigning by his word and spirit. This is the Lord who is sovereign and omnipotent. And wise and good. And just like our earthly parents love us as best as they can, but they're finite and they're fallen and they can't do everything they want to do for us. That's not the case with this lover. The one who is sovereign over all things loves us as believers as the Father loves him. Charles Haddon Spurgeon, who recognized that all Scripture is equally God-breathed. What we mean by that is all Scripture is as inspired as any other Scripture. So if you read the first nine chapters of Chronicles, it reads like a Jerusalem phone book. It's no less inspired than John 3.16. And yet there are certain verses that have a kind of glory to them that are unique. And he says, Spurgeon... I've often wondered if this is the greatest verse that I can ever fathom in the Bible. He says it's the choicest pearl of truth ever dissolved into a single verse. If you ever wonder how much Jesus loves you, and it's not based on your performance, by the way. If you ever wonder that, you need to think about this comparison. He loves you as the Father loves him. He is wooing us. That's what love does. Even if someone's subordinate to you. Now, in one sense, no one's subordinate to you because all of us have equal worth and and dignity before God. We're all equal image bearers, all right? But someone may be subordinate to you in rank. Even if that person is subordinate to you in rank, when they love you, it, it has an effect on you. But there is one person in the universe who is superior to us in worth. And that one person loves us as the father loves the son. He is wooing us. Well, notice in the second part of verse nine, he says, as the father has loved me, so I've loved you, abide in my love. So he's not just laying commands on us. He's wooing us before He gets to the commands. Abide in my love. Why would you not? If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. So he's comparing his relationship to the father again. Now, in John 14, 15, just a couple of pages over, we saw, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. But here the order is reversed. John's not contradicting himself. He's making a point. Here, obedience results in abiding. And so the natural conclusion from this, what you might say a reversible statement is that they are interrelated and inseparable. You cannot have one without the other. If you love Jesus, you're gonna obey. And if you obey, you're loving Jesus and abiding in him. And he said, that's just as the relationship I have with my father. That brings us to the next part. So abiding in Christ bears the fruit of obedience where we are now under the Lordship of Christ out of love, but as a means of abiding, But then we come to that wonderful verse that many have been comforted by through the years. Abiding in Christ bears the fruit of joy. Verse 11. These things I have spoken to you. What things? Everything he has said, especially in verses 1 to 10 about the vine and the branches, branches abiding in the vine, bearing much fruit, and the vine dresser pruning those branches. He says, these things I have spoken that my, notice, my joy may be in you. He is, he is coming that we might have joy. A lot of times, many people think that, that God is a kill joy. He's actually after the things that ultimately kill our joy, all right? These things, I I want you to have joy. And he says, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Do you realize that's what motivates every human heart? We want joy. We want peace. And and Jesus is saying, it's my joy and it's my peace. In fact, uh, we saw in chapter 14, verse 27, this is my peace. In verse nine, we saw it's my love. And here, it is my joy. Do you get that? All that the heart longs for. Everything that motivates us, we are motivated by a pursuit of joy. If you go out on Thursday night to evangelize these young people, uh, they're pursuing joy. They're just misheaded. They're, they're wrongheaded. They, 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 they have a misconception of where joy is found. He is saying, this is my joy. I'm the creator of joy. And so it is Jesus' joy that's actually being communicated to the one who is abiding in him in obedience. And joy isn't just a better form of the Christian life. It is the Christian life. A joyless Christian is not abiding in the vine. The fruit of the Spirit is joy. Nehemiah says in Nehemiah chapter 8, the joy of the Lord is our strength. So this joy is a deep-seated confidence in ultimately three things. First of all, that, that, this, that God loves me in Jesus Christ and has everything under control. This is Romans eight twenty eight. He is working all things together for the good, for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. So think of a, and the ingredients of a, of a great recipe. Some ingredients may be nasty tasting, foul to taste in and of itself. Some ingredients may be good, but they all come together to form this beautiful recipe. All things are working together for the good of those who love him. When you understand that, joy will be the product. Secondly, uh, when you consider the fact that I deserve worse than what I am getting. But because of the cross, I'll never get it. That's another reason for for joy. No matter how your circumstances may be, given our vile hearts, we deserve worse than what we are getting. But because of the cross, you'll never get it. And then third... Because of the cross, I am assured that this Godhead, Father, Son, and Spirit, is completely invested in me. How comforting is that? He is completely, he's all in. All right? That's where peace is found. And so we have the promise of joy, the fruit of joy for those who abide in him. That brings us to the the next point. And this is the final point. And this point is found from verses 12 to 17. As we'll see, there's an inclusio there, uh, inspired bookends to, to signal what the main point here is. Abiding in Christ bears the fruit of love. Verse 12. This is my commandment, that you love one another, as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this that someone lay down his life for his friends. Now, he hasn't laid down his life for his friends yet. It's about to happen, though. He's hours away from the cross. Now, verse nine, it's hard not to like what he says in verse nine. I love you like the Father loves me. But here, he's getting in our business. He's getting in our business right here because what he is saying here is that the kind of love that glorifies the Father, that kind of love has the cross as its model. Again, look with me. He says, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. That's tough. Later, John will write in 1 John 3, 16, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. And so the cross becomes the paradigm for what real love is. Given that, let me give you a definition of love. The unswerving commitment to the redemptive good of another at the expense of self. That's what love is. Anything else is a parody. The unswerving commitment to the redemptive good of another at the expense of self of course, this has to be qualified in this sense. The love of Jesus can't in every way be a pattern for us. Why? For one, his love was of infinite value. Second, his love was that of a substitute. He, is, he has come as our substitute, living in our place and dying in our place. And in third, his love has eternally. REDEMPTIVE VALUE. THAT SAID, THERE IS ONE CHARACTERISTIC OF LOVE WHICH CAN BE REFLECTED BY US. THAT IS THE LOVE OF CHRIST. IT'S SELF-SACRIFICING NATURE FOR THOSE WHO SOMETIMES DON'T DESERVE IT. IN FACT, PAUL SAYS THAT'S THE KIND OF LOVE THAT GOD SHOWED US IN JESUS. FOR WE WERE STILL WITHOUT STRENGTH IN DUE TIME, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man would one die. Perhaps for a good man, one would even dare to die. But God demonstrated his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now, I want you to note that elsewhere we're called to love our enemies, but here he's referring to our brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, that doesn't mean you overlook all offenses. Matthew 18 tells us that if a brother sins against you, you go to that brother and, and you, you make resolution. You deal with it until you're reconciled in some way. But it does mean we overlook minor offenses. It, it does mean that we don't cherry pick and, 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 and criticize and, and, and pick holes in other people's character. It does mean we don't slander our brother. It does mean we don't gossip about our brothers. It does mean that even if this person gets on my every last nerve and this person rubs me the wrong way, I'm going to pursue that person's redemptive good. Jesus is saying that's the kind of love by which the Father is glorified. And remember, he's already said in John chapter 13, this is the way the world will know that you're my disciples. Again, do you want this world to be subsumed with righteousness? Do you want evil to be overcome? From our end, it's by bearing fruit. And the ultimate of all fruit is love. Love, that's what he's after here. And so... It refuses to do harm to my brother. It refuses to do harm to my sister. And if it does do harm, we repent. This is a response to our friendship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice in verse 14, you are my friends if you do what I command you. So whatever situation we are Uh, where we're considering how we should respond to a person. Maybe this person has hurt you. Maybe this person has frustrated you. Maybe this person has mistreated you in some way and you don't like what they're doing. Here's the question we should ask ourselves. If I say or do this, will it be honoring my friendship with the Lord Jesus Christ? THAT'S A GOOD QUESTION TO ASK YOURSELF. AND IN THIS CONTEXT, WHAT HE COMMANDS IS NOT LEFT FOR SPECULATION. IT'S LOVING TO THE POINT OF DEATH. OF COURSE, THAT'S GENERALLY GOING TO BE METAPHORICAL FOR US. WE'RE NOT GOING TO to GENERALLY OR TYPICALLY DIE FOR SOMEONE, BUT YOU ARE SACRIFICING YOURSELF TO THE POINT OF DEATH FOR THEIR GOOD. You see, those who Jesus befriends become like him and they grow increasingly to love like him. It's not that our obedience earns Jesus' friendship, but that our friendship with Jesus transforms his friends with the result that they obey and they love like him. Well, notice in verse 15. No longer do I call you servants. For the servant does not know what his master is doing. That is, the servant just does what the master tells him to do. There's no relationship. But I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. I mean, this is such an incredible promise. This is the the friend who sticks closer than a brother. John Webster, the great theologian who, who no longer with us, but he points out that this friendship, being bef- befriended by Jesus, think about this this friend is one who gives everything for us. I mean, he, he gives everything for us and he seeks out our well being at all times. In every situation, even at the cost of his life. And this is wooing us here. This should be transforming our lives and transforming our hearts. And I might add, he even even gives his life to the point of not just dying, but receiving the wrath of God for our sins. And not only that, in making us friends, he shares with us the secrets of heavenly wisdom. Again, notice in verse 15, For all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. You see what he's doing? He's overcoming our ignorance due to the hardening of our hearts. He's overcoming our ignorance by shedding light, the light of God, the wisdom of God, the knowledge of God. Now, he will do this with the original disciples by, through the Spirit, inspiring them to write the Scriptures but he will do that with us by giving us the spirit to give us illumination on what these disciples write. But though these disciples and though we as believers are Jesus' friends, this does not mean we're on equal footing with him. As I said earlier, there's no one, no human that's superior to you with regard to worth And dignity, not a single person, because all of us are equally the image of God. That's why sexism, classism, racism, and every ism is sinful and wicked. Yet, there is one who is superior to us. We're not on equal footing with this friend. You see, friends generally choose each other. But in this case, Jesus' friendship is different. Notice verse 16. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, there's that promise there, he may give it to you. And then verse 17, we'll come back to next time, these things I command you so that you will love one another. And so verse 12 began that passage, that you love one another, and it ends with that promise or that command to love one another. Now, we tend to think the initiative in our relationship with God begins with us. That's what is natural for us to think because in all other relationships, we, we in some way take the initiative But here Jesus is saying, that's not the case with God. The foundation of God's love and relationship with us never lies in us. It's always in him, or we wouldn't have a relationship with him because we are dead in our trespasses and sins. We we are rebels to God. The carnal mind is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. This is sovereign grace. And if you don't like that, the problem is your fallen sensibilities. You need to let the word transform your fallen sensibilities. But does this negate human responsibility? No, absolutely not. But we are not the ones who created this friendship. It came by divine decision and sovereign grace. And by this grace and with this grace, we are given a task, notice this, He says that you should go and bear fruit. Again, verse 8 tells us this is how the Father is glorified, that you should go and bear fruit. This is our role in overcoming the kind of evil our country saw 60 years ago and has seen every day ever since. We overcome the barrenness of our broken world, the barrenness in your family, the barrenness in your workplace, the barrenness on your ball team or your band, the barrenness where you do your recreational activity. We overcome this barrenness with fruit bearing. And so let's sum up this passage in this way, a fourfold way, as we approach the table this morning. First of all, life in Christ, that's salvation. Why? Because it is in Christ that the wrath of God has already failed. It's not going to fall on him again. And so you run to Christ, he's your refuge. Life in Christ is salvation. Secondly, life with Christ Is communion, abiding. It's life with Christ. And it's as the word indwells you. Third, life by Christ, that's life producing. It's his love. It's his joy. It's his peace that is produced. It's life by Christ. And finally, life for Christ is mission. Go and bear fruit. Is there any better command than that? As we approach International Missions Festival Week, go and bear fruit. It's clearly a call to every Christian. This is how the Father's glorified. But it begins for us with abiding. Thanks for worshiping with us today. If you felt the Lord leading you to respond today, whether that was to receive Christ for the first time or to take your next step in baptism, or if you have a prayer request, we want to start that conversation with you. Visit lakeviewbaptist.org contact to get in touch with one of our pastors. And as always, you can stay connected with us through our social media and website.